Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Cynthia Loren here with you today to introduce an episode where we revisit a wonderful interview Jim had just about a year ago with Nicole Kelsey, Chief Legal Officer and Secretary at Amiris. Nicole takes us through her story, starting with home life and the power of education, all the way through to her passion for social justice and the impact she's making with her team at Amiris. It's a great discussion, and you can tell how passionate Nicole is about the work she's doing and the impact she and her team are having within the business. So in the usual fashion, sit back, stay tuned, and enjoy the show. Nicole, welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to this. Really excited to have you on board. Oh, please. It's an honor to to be asked to join you. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Um, Now, Nicole, currently you're um, the Chief Legal Officer and Secretary of Amherst, but you weren't always in that position. Take me right back to law school. What got you interested in the first place? And then from there, perhaps a little bit of an arc of your career and some of the kind of defining moments. But take me right back to start off with. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those lawyers who knew from a very young age that she wanted to be a lawyer. I, I think the idea of advocacy, really in its purest sense, fighting for the underdog, um, the underdog is now called the disempowered, right? The marginalized, the disenfranchised. And when, when I was young, it was the underdog resonated to me um, with me very, from a very young age. I remember um, watching um, To Kill a Mockingbird on TV with my dad. I must have been seven or eight years old and turning to him during one of the commercial breaks and saying, I want to do what that man does, but I want to wear a pretty dress. Um, I, you know, that, that really kind of says it all from that kind of, you could pretty much put that on my tombstone that pretty much encapsulates everything about me, you know, the advocacy and the, and the, and the lipstick, right? <laughs> I, 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 I love that. And uh, in fact, um, just a few months ago, actually, when my um, youngest daughter was with us in New York, we went and saw again, and it never gets old. We went and saw To, to Kill a Mockingbird. What, oh, wow. what, what an inspirational thing, right, when you're at school right through to coming right. back and the lessons learned so right um, right and it, and it's um it's perpetual i think yeah it, yeah yeah and so. especially now in the times that we're living in now uh ironic or or maybe a little bit sad how how still relevant that story is right um but he he definitely atticus finch was definitely doing the most basic pure thing uh about being an attorney right he was advoca- advocating for justice he was tr- trying to do the right thing um and he was using all of his tools and his toolbox right to to get him there so um you know he he used his legal education his commitment to justice his his commitment to our constitution um and his persuasive skills right his you know his power of persuasion and the empathy bit, it's the empathy, and the empathy. it's the putting yourself in the shoes of someone else, you know, those own, the, what I think just immortal words and walking around. Right. Um, uh, and that I would talk about, you know, when, when raising children and, and right. trying to instill that in them because 
it is so important to be able it, to have that put yourself in someone else's shoes to really around. understand right Correct. The, 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 the you know the ideal goal for all advocates right is to understand the other um, to really be able to as much as possible see as many perspectives as possible at all times um, without losing sight of what what's true and what's right um, and for me I'm half French so uh, you know, the word for lawyer in French is avocat, which l- quite literally means advocate. So um, for me, it was, it, was, um, it, was p- it was part of who I was from ever since I can remember, to be honest. I went to Northwestern Law School, and like a lot of kids in law school, I, you know, did as much as I could there. So I worked in the clinic. I was an editor for the International Law Journal. I competed in moot court and then was on the national moot court team. Um, I think the, the thing I'm the most proud of there is that I co-founded with another student, and I co-founded the Feminist Law Symposium there, and it, it lasted for um, a decade or more after we left. So um, that was huge for me. Um, and then I also was one of the three or four third years uh, in my class who wrote a senior thesis, and mine served as the kind of the basis to compete for and then eventually land a Fulbright Fellowship in North Africa after I graduated. So I conducted political, sociological, literary research all around um, the investigation of the female voice in an Arab country, with Arab law. And then while I was there in Tunis, I also took up an intensive Arabic course at the Bourguiba School. So it was a it was a rich time for me then, but then I came back and kind of follow the typical path, went to Wall Street, and, went into a Wall Street firm, you know. And, and Nicole, I, t- it, I would say ahead of your time too, ha- having lived in the Middle East myself for six years, and this was between yeah. 2007 and 13, just yeah. the, to- the topic that you talk about there, a, a voice and in that culture as a female, yeah. um, that was not something, and I'm not sure it is today something, that um, we hear enough about. Right. Um, so I'm really interested in basically how you early you were, if you like, um, to, to, to that theme, the topic, and um, what inspired you. You know, again, just to go back to my roots, I'm half French yeah. Catholic, half, and the other half is Algerian Muslim. That's my right. mother. And then, yep. you know, white American Protestant was my dad. Yep. And so... Um, I had been, you know, studying languages my whole life. My mom taught us all at the kitchen table after school. And um, what's that Shakespeare quote of the boys dragging their, you know, feet to their books or whatever. Definitely did that to us uh, in the summertime. We had lessons in the morning and weren't allowed to go and play and weren't allowed to go to the pool in the afternoon until we'd done you know, our English homework and our math homework and our science homework and our French homework. So, um, so the, the language piece, I became, I was fluent by the time I was six in French and I just studied languages the rest of my life, you know, all through high school and college and law school. I mean, I took a break, obviously I wasn't studying when I was in law school, I took a break in Arabic, which is why I took that intensive course uh, when I found myself lucky enough to be back to be in the, in the Arab world and, and to have access to um, an academic institution like the Bermuda School. Um, yeah. But I, so when my, my thesis was about, was a pure legal analysis of, of women's rights under Sharia, which is the Arabic law, and then 
when I was doing that research, and because I was at Northwestern, I would go up to Evanston, because we know we were down on the lake with the, the, the graduate schools, and use their library, and then I would come back to my professor, and I would tell her all the stuff I was finding in the stacks in Northwestern. I'm like, this woman, she's Moroccan, she wrote this, this Tunisian woman wrote this, this, this Algerian, this Egyptian woman, and, you know, and we would always get off topic during our sessions and be talking about poetry or sociology or, or uh, you know, political activism, etc. And so she said, finally, at some point, she was very patient, lovely, very smart woman, obviously, but she said, you know, you might think about pursuing this a little bit further and do doing some more in-depth research, which is how I, and I'm like, oh, okay, how would I do that? And so that. then that, that's how that's how it all got generated. Um, you know, that said, Bourguiba was the, the first president, you know, democratically elected president in the Arab world who propounded rights for women, who established them in the constitution uh, in Tunisia. So it really was a leader in the Arab world and the Muslim world at the time, you know, Turkey as well kind of followed suit after that. Egypt came close behind for a little while and then regressed, unfortunately. So that's kind of how I found myself there doing that at that time. Nicole, we could have a whole separate podcast, if not a series on that. It's incredibly fascinating. Talk to me about some of those some of those key influences throughout your career and what you kind of look now at turning, whether they're turning points or really um, influential moments to get you to the point that you are. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'd today. say that you know the the biggest kind of influence in my life was my mother, right? Um, she was always bridging divides. Obviously, again, half French Catholic, half Arab Muslim. She was treated as a foreigner wherever she found herself when she was a child, right? Um, her father was Algerian Muslim, but was uh, in the French army, so they went back and forth between Wahran also known as Oran, on the, on the coast of Algeria, and uh, Metz, which is in La Lorraine, the province in France where she was born. So when she's in France, she's treated as a foreigner there, right? Uh, she's too dark. She's not a true Catholic, right? When she's in Algeria, she's too French. She's too privileged, so she's not accepted there. So, and then, you know, she would just to add, you know, uh, you know, more salt to the wound, I guess. She she met my father, who was a tall, blonde, hazel-eyed West Pointer, right? And married him and uh, got tr- got to be treated as a foreigner her entire life living in living in the States, right? So I saw, I saw this all happening, you know, from a very early age. You watch it. You children see everything. You know, you've got three of them. Um, she learned to assimilate and kind of make herself as acceptable and as agreeable as possible in every every social situation she found herself in. And I I know that my choice to be an attorney in many ways was in reaction to what I saw as her silent acceptance of her mistreatment, right? And I didn't like it, and I didn't think it was fair, and I didn't think it was just, and I it motivated me. Um, and she she pursued education really as her exit, right? She she despite all of her education, and and she was she was an amazing person. She reared four kids pretty much on her own when my dad was off managing, you know, jet bombers in Vietnam, flying those uh, during the Vietnam War. She reared four kids on her own while she got her GD and she started substitute teaching. She ended up graduating magna cum laude. She pursued two PhDs throughout her life while she was had a full teaching career. 
And she always, always kind of propounded this idea that education is the exit, right? no matter what happens in your life, and you can encounter all kinds of obstacles. You can be caught in a war, you could get divorced, you could lose your job, but you will never, ever lose your education. She would always say, you know, they can take everything away from you, but they can never take your education. You work for that, you earned it, it's yours to keep forever. So I think that watching her, um, this woman who I believe that was my first well, obviously it was the first true intellectual I ever met, but I think it was she's probably one of the few true intellectuals I've ever met. She really had this amazing 360-degree brain, and she could she read everything just voraciously, right? And she was interested in almost everything. I mean, even much later in life when I had moved to Paris and was living on my own or when I was living in New York and she would come and stay with me, I would drag her to museums and film festivals and you know, dance performances. And I remember taking her to see a William Forsyth uh, perform um, uh, at Châtelet in Paris when I was living there. And, you know, there are new dancers on the stage. And my mom was a pretty traditional Catholic girl, right? And she just turned to me and she's like, I, I think he's naked. And I'm like, yep, he's pretty much naked, maman. Like it was, you know, she just kind of rolled with it, right? And I, I think that I always held her yep. up as the ideal model for me, right? Her stamina, her kind of never giving up, her, her love of, of knowledge, right? That, that, old, that ongoing curiosity, I kind of held that as a model for myself and the education that I sought for myself in undergrad and law school. And I'm sure that's why I kind of went after everything in law school that I could and, and, and since then. So um, she's definitely, um, yeah, she definitely impacted my, me academically. She definitely impacted the way I, what route I chose to take professionally. And she even impacted the way I chose to rear my daughter. I mean, she had, she was married to a traditional military American guy, right? Meat and potatoes at 530 at the ta- on the table waiting for him. So um, she could only teach us after school. Like she wasn't allowed to speak to us kind of in a liberal fashion in French uh, in the home. And I, I had, you know, and, I, and linguistics um, pedagogy changes over time. And, and somewhere in there, she and I learned before I had my daughter that it was best to rear a child in a foreign language if the parent was one parent is always speaking one language to that child. So as long as the child from, from the time they're born sees one language coming out of that same mouth, that same talking head, that child is going to learn that language. So I reared my daughter in French because of, of the way my mom had to kind of be limited and restricted as a linguist in rearing us uh, with a second language. So yeah, she really impacted me in, in every way, academically, professionally, and from a parenting perspective. What an incredible story and an incredible influence. Given that what I've seen you achieve in your career, and I can see how much of an influence your mother has been, how on earth did you manage that kind of success? Um, And, you know, single parenthood, um, and now to a 19-year-old daughter who's just finished her first year um, uh, at, at college, Tell me how you organize your time, how, how you prioritize, how you actually get through um, uh, to achieve that kind of success with that kind of 
um, well, responsibility, and of course you're not alone, but um, there are people out there, just, especially earlier in their career, that are thinking, tell me some of the how. What do I need to focus on? It helps if you know what you want, right? So the sooner you can kind of figure out, listen, these are my priorities and this is what I want. Somewhere in private practice, I knew I didn't want to become a partner. So I knew I wanted to go in-house, right? So I kind of went that route. And then when I was practicing in-house, I you know, out of the gate, you know, I did securities and capital markets work. I was a straight corporate, you know, Wall Street corporate attorney, like everybody. And then, um, and, and a lot of M&A. And then I kind of became an M&A expert. And then somewhere in the kind of 24-7 churn, month after month, year after year of just endless M&A deals in New York, and I'd had my daughter at this point, I thought, what do I really want? And I knew at some point, I knew after I asked myself, and I always, I, I do have a little rule that um, about every two to three years, I pull back in my career and I have a very naked conversation with myself of like, okay, what's what's been going on? What have you actually, what have you done well? What have you done, pr- you know, pretty well? What could you do better at? And what have you completely failed at? And, you know, and what do those failures mean? Does it, do they mean, cut and let it loose or try again. So um, somewhere in one of those um, two or three year self-reflection cycles, I, I realized I wanna be a GC. I'll, I'll wanna be a GC of a small company maybe, or the deputy GC of a big company like Pepsi. So, and, and th- this is when I was still in New York, uh, still in financial services. And my daughter must have been six at the time. And my mom was getting pretty sick then too. And all my siblings were married and had kids. I was the only one who wasn't married. And so I thought, okay, I need to kind of do something that figure out how do I balance all this, right? Like how do I, how am I still present with my daughter? And believe me, you know, there were times, especially uh, on the M&A rhythm where, you know, I would rush home from, you know, from the city to Brooklyn, collect my kid. And, you know, I would go, you know, go carry my toddler in one arm and the stroller and my bag of documents on my other arm and my cell phone. This was before earbuds, right? Like, uh, you know, like this between your ear and your shoulder. And my daughter was actually pretty, um, she was, she was pretty intuitive baby and child. Like she was pretty non-interruptive. So she wasn't the kind of child who would scream and like pull my hair when I was on the phone or anything. So she kind of just hung out and watched me and I would be walking up the metro steps negotiating provisions of the document, right? Until I could get her in the stroller and then push her with one hand and hold the phone. And by the time we moved here, um, and she was a freshman in high school. She made a joke. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta clear somebody. You guys gotta keep it down. Whatever. My mom and my daughter was like, Do you want me to take that call for you, mom? You can do the laundry. I can, I can clear him. Like she, she had heard it so many times, right? So yeah. So I think that you have to know what you want, and then um, you have to go for it. And, and that means have enough grace and um, self acceptance to. To, to know that you're gonna you might fail at some things and don't beat yourself out too much about it um, just accept that you failed and then and then just reset some of it also comes for me comes from physical strength because I've I've been 
doing sports. I've kind of been an athlete off and on my whole life since I was, I don't know, eight or nine or 10, 10 years old. So the physical strength helps a lot. I really didn't have to sleep more than four, four and a half hours a night. Um, I went through my kid's backpack every afternoon, you know, every evening. And I, re, you know, I made every single lunch. And, um, you know, I, no one ever gave my daughter a bath. Like I was home for bath time. I touched her. She saw me bathe her and put her pajamas on. I read with her. I put her down. And then I would go back and work again, right? And um, I just kind of did that slog uh, many, many years. Um, it wasn't really a slog because, you know, I had a rich and really incredible life. But you have to kind of just push through, I think. And then be willing. I think the third thing, so know what you want. You know, love yourself enough to forgive yourself if you, you know, if you make mistakes and just reset. And then, you know, if you can physically push through, maybe physically push through. And then I, I think the the fourth thing is you have to find a little bit of courage, right? Um, I think people call it grit today, right? And I've been told that I'm kind of super gritty, right? But you have to raise your hand. You have to raise your hand for promotions. You have to raise your hand to do different things. You have to work with different people. You have to try different things. Um, that's, it's really through the kind of raising my hand and taking risks that the doors have opened. I, I think actually the doors open when you take risks and when you fail. I, I don't know very many people who, I mean, I'm sure they're out there who have just, you know, sailed through life and always gotten A's and, you know, went to Harvard twice and, you know, never got a speeding ticket and never dropped the F-bomb and, you know, in church and whatever, all the things I've done, right? But, um, I, that's not me, and that's not many people I know. <laughs> I was going to say, if you know anyone like that, happy to get them yeah. introduced to me, but I doubt they really exist. I, I'm, th there are so many things you've touched on there, Nicole. I'd love to do a deeper dive. We don't have too much time. But um, grit. Grit, isn't, grit is something that I talk about a lot. And um, I also talk about it in terms of worrying about whether or not um, there is enough grit um, whether it's my children, the next generation, whatever it might be, we always think we'd, we, we, we've seen a little more, we've gone a little harder, we're a little stronger sometimes than, um, than the generation we're raising. I don't know whether every generation thinks like that, but I think a lot about grit and being okay to fail um, uh, and being really comfortable with being uncomfortable. A lot of things that you've been talking about right now. Um, how did, how do you, how do you teach that, instill that, um, whether it's in your team members, whether it's in those early, the people early in their career, whether it's in your children, because I think it's key that grit, which which results, which I think results in resilience too, which is really important for all of us. What, what do you do? <laughs> Just to add on to that, I think it results in resilience, but I also think it results in creativity, right? I think that. You don't, you're not really challenged to find another way around the situation unless you're told no, or you're, you know, bat, you know, you're, you're pushed back or you're, or you fall flat on your face. Right. And I, I, I worked for someone a couple of years ago and he told us, me the story about, he, he, he's a French Catholic guy, traditional French Catholic, a big Breton family, you know, from Bretagne, a uh, big sailing family. And it had older brothers, two older brothers, and they're both very successful sailors. And then he went to the all boys school where they went, right? And he was 
planning to join the sailing team and they were full and the director said you know I'm sorry but you know you're gonna have to find another sport and he was like okay so he went and did some other sport with you know half his heart and then he went back at the end of the quarter and said I want to be in the sailing team and he was like yeah the sailing team's full for the year if you didn't like that sport you could try this sport because the season's changing so he changed sports came back a quarter later and said I'd like to be on the sailing team and by the third time the director was so sick of having this young kid in his office demanding to be on the sailing team that he just shoved him onto the sailing team right and um the irony here is this was someone who was my boss at the time who used to say no to me quite a bit. <laughs> and and yet he just told me this whole story about how there really is no such thing as no. And so I have taken that kind of um, the irony of that, right, of someone who used to say no to me and didn't realize that he just taught me what became my credo per professionally personally as a parent, personally as an athlete, which is there's really no such thing as no. You just have to keep asking, right? Um, sometimes you have to ask in a different way. Sometimes you have to go find somewhere else to ask, but you keep going at it, right? That That's the grit, right? So I think that um, what I try to do with my team is um, I'm very direct with them and I'm very transparent. So when there's a mistake, I call out the mistake. I expect accountability. I tell them I expect accountability. I'm accountable to them and in front of them when I've made mistakes. So I try to model the behavior and teach it proactively. And I do the same with my daughter and any of the girls that she brings into this house because it is kind of a village sometimes where you just talk openly about the issue and say, okay, well, so that happened put a pin in that. Now what are we going to do? And so then you just address the reality that you're facing and you go at it, right? And and every single time I've had team members come back to me and say that was a super uncomfortable conversation. I felt like this big um, I questioned, you know, all this, you know, all these years I've worked and what I've been doing, but wow, I learned a lot and now I feel I feel stronger. And I'm like, then, then we both, then we both hit our target. Right. We, you know, and you, and that's how you become gritty, right. Is, you know, each time just taking it on, being very honest with yourself and whoever you're working with and, and, and then turn around and try to crush it, you know, a second time or a third time. It's funny. It's, it's actually a tough skill to learn because it's, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. Um, But to me, I always say that's where all the growth is. All the, yeah. the, the growth is not um, the path which is well-trodden or being comfortable or knowing exactly what's coming up next. That, right. That's not where growth, growth happens. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, there's someone on my team who said, who's been teaching us uh, about grit a little bit and said, you know, you're, you're really supposed to be doing something that makes you uncomfortable, if not straight up afraid every day. So here I am doing this podcast because this is not really in my wheelhouse at all. And um, I am actually shy and don't, you know, go around carrying the flag of Nicole. Let's talk about Nicole today. Right. Um, But it's I'm learning a lot. Right. So I think that um, there's there's I I hate that saying, you know, you should be do something you're afraid of, you know, at least once a day. But it's true. I mean, it, it really it does really work out. You know, it's the same thing of, you know, Okay, you want to wear the you know itsy bitsy teeny weeny polka dotted bikini? 
then get down on the ground and do a thousand sit-ups, right? I mean, you know, so it's, it is, it does. It's actually my favorite t-shirt. The do something scares you every day is my favorite yeah. t-shirt um, yeah. because it's a fantastic yeah. discipline. Um, and it is, as I said, I always come back to that's where the growth is. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, fun, it's yeah. funny, I just saw at the bottom of um, one of your team's emails, I love the fact you've got FY22 legal team mission statement. Oh yeah. Um, adapt, advocate, innovate, educate, empower. Yeah. That's the first time I've seen, I love that. I tell you what, Nicole, I love that. Then you, then you would love my team. Um, we do this every year, every January, we come together and say, okay, what was our mission statement last year? It's something I created in my first GC role um, at Critio, and then I brought it to Amorous. Um, I think that it, it serves two purposes. One, it really um, brings your team together. They are collaborating and thinking together. Who are we? What do we want to be? And what impact do we want to leave, right? And then secondly, and this is a little bit more political, this is, a little, this is me putting my C-suite hat on, it helps create a brand for your team so that the legal team has a real presence across the company internally and then obviously externally because it's seen, it's, it's, it's on the, um, you saw it in the signature block because it's in the signature block, it's embedded in the signature block of everybody on the team. So every January we come together and say, okay, what was our mission statement last year? How did we do? Was that who we were? Let's discuss some experiences. And then who, what's important to us as we look towards this coming year? What has, where is the company in its trajectory? What challenges is the company facing? What challenges are we facing in the broader legal industry? And then obviously what socioeconomic challenges are we facing in, the, in America and in the world? What things are important to us? And that's why I think you see um, words like advocate and empower, right? Um, all coming from uh, you know, the arc that this country has been living through uh, the past few years that my team's been together. And one, the other thing I love about that, Nicole, is that it gives people a sense of, uh, whether it's a mission, a, a belonging, um, a, um, an ability to contribute, which is frankly broader than just organization-wide and what might specifically be important um, from a business perspective, Tamaris, to really, this is who I am, this is what, it, what, is, what is important to me and the team. And this is the kind of lawyer I'm correct, going to be for you. Correct. Right? And, and presumably it acts as a touchstone to when you're coming up with difficult decisions, um, referencing back, what are, who do we say we are? What do we say our missions are? And, and how does that impact on the way that we're going to make a decision in, in the particular case that we're considering right now? That is so... Because so, sometimes then the answer is really obvious. Um, but, but without that touchstone... Um, you know, you can be lost or, um, so I don't know whether that's happened. Yeah, I think that building a brand is very important for a legal team in, in a public or a private company. Um, I think that historically legal has kind of been kind of a second tier function sometimes, um, called out of necessity or blamed when something, you know, goes wrong, right? They're the first, you know, the, 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 point, the finger first goes to legal because that's the, the legal governs the documentation. And so th this is trying to rise above this, right, to elevate the function so that you think about talking to your lawyer at 
all different points in the 360 cycle of an issue or a transaction or or trying to pursue a strategy. You're talking to the lawyer when you want to brainstorm with somebody just because you know that lawyer is smart, creative, open-minded, has lots of great experience in, in his or her backpack already that they can pull out and employ to, to help you move your puck down the field, right? So that's really what that's about. I mean, I tease my, my team all the time, it's all about the brand, baby, but it is about the brand, right? You are you are sending a message that you're not just here to run a term sheet. You're 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 not a secretary. You contribute to the business. You contribute to setting strategy. You contribute to setting up prophylactic compliance programs so that you don't have issues down the road like litigation and investigations, etc. What makes you swell up a little bit um, in the last, let's say, year or two that you guys have achieved? We have quite a few initiatives in the team, so I'm I'm kind of proud about that. Uh, we have we have a broad team, so we have you know there's a corporate side, there's a compliance side, compliance and now uh, a litigation and investigation side because you know um, I kind of got tired of faking being a litigator uh, year after year. Um, I'm just joking. I learned a lot, so that, that was fun. Um, that happened as we were talking about before, um, and and the obviously complex commercial transaction side and then, and then a clean beauty kind of brand side. So we have we have many facets to the team, but we also have these initiatives that go above, above and beyond the job description of anybody on the team and and again beyond the traditional role of lawyer who drafts and helps you negotiate or helps you get out of a problem. So we have uh, we started our our the first DEI initiative at the company back in 2019. Uh, we have a we have a community outreach um, initiative in our team called Legal Gives Back that we started two years ago. Um, and then, um, and so I'm very proud of both of those things. The Legal Gives Back uh, really pushes forward and, and improves, uh, seeks to improve, impact positive change really uh, in communities through education. So when I've brought um, I've brought a couple of impressive women to the company. Um, one is local Bay Area, very successful entrepreneur, Mina Harris. Um, you may know her. She's the niece of our vice president. She came to speak to our company last year for International Women's Day. And she wrote a book called Ambitious Girl because, um, like me and many other women, she was told from you know a young age, oh, you're too ambitious. And she was like, you know, I'm gonna reset that. You know, girls should be ambitious, yeah. So my Legal Gives Back um, initiative donated uh, like 200 plus books to um, all the kindergarten through third graders in two local public schools in the East Bay in Oakland and in Emeryville. And then similarly this year for, um, what we call in the states MMIWG, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls National Awareness Day. I brought Representative Sharice Davis, who Davids, who is um, the second female um, Native American and the first LGBTQ plus Native American um, elected to Congress here uh, in the states, and she came to speak to us about legislation around MMIWG and and other. Uh, pertinent things with regards to the Native American and f- the female Native American population. And she wrote a book called, Sh- her first name is Sharice, Sharice's Big Voice. The name of her tribe means people of the big voice because they have a direct link to God. Pretty pretty impactful. So sh- we, you might see her book behind me right there. 
Um, we also don- donated those books. So that's through my, my Gives Back initiative. Um, but I'd have to say, um, if I had to pick, the thing that I'm the most proud of um, is an, an initiative I launched um, a couple of years ago, um, the summer after George Floyd was murdered, um, which is our Legal Lunch and Learn series. It's twice a year, and we take an issue, uh, usually a legal issue, um, and we analyze the historical and philosophical underpinnings, the social, societal, econ- economic, and social impacts of that issue, and we s- present it to the entire company with full PowerPoint decks, um, and usually five or six members of my team do it, and we get do it in, in an hour uh, on a on a Wednesday at lunch. And so the first that that summer, I'd been at the company, I think three years by then. And um, I'd looked around my team and I was thinking of thing, ways to motivate them. And I realized how incredibly smart they all were. So I thought, you know, what would be really cool is if we did like a lunch and learn, where we just taught about the law and made the law accessible because we have huge what we call in French grosse tête, right? These huge intellects walking all over my company. You know, PhDs from MIT and Stanford and Cal and Yale and et cetera. So I'm like, they're gonna love this. So, and they do. So that first, that that August, um, I was very worried that summer about RBG passing and, and she did pass a month after we presented, but we, the first Lunch and Learn we did was on a, a survey of the jurisprudence of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the Supreme Court bench. So we covered same-sex marriage, uh, right to vote, equal pay, um, reproductive rights, and immigration and deportation. And then it, there was such a massive reaction from um, from the employee base, um, literally from you know the whole all you know from the scientist one all the way up to people in the c-suite about how great that was that we do this now biannually every two years twice twice a year so so nicole i have to say that that i don't think i've heard of an initiative like that where essentially the legal team gets to present on um thought-provoking legal topics of interest to to the whole organization i think that is that is an incredible idea, especially if you can pick something, well, well, uh, something relevant, ap- absolutely. Exactly. The second one we did was on the Electoral College. I'm like, you know, do you have any yeah. idea how this works? Like, you've been voting in the United States, you're in your 30s or your 40s, and you still don't understand how our voting system works? Either do we. We're going to research it and teach that, you about it. Right. And we, we did. So with a survey and uh, yeah. a global survey, and we... we um, we compare. We covered Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. New Zealand has got the best yeah. voting system yeah. of anybody any, anywhere in the world, in my humble opinion. So, like, okay, before you're ready to like pack your bags and and, and move to New Zealand, um, yeah. you know, here's yeah. some things that we can do to possibly improve the system um, in the sta- in the states. So, yeah, it's been, Fan- it's been great. fantastic. Um, Nicole, I'm going to uh, round out with two questions. I'm going to tell you both of them um, up front. I'm going to ask you um, what keeps you up at night now and then going to fit in. So sometimes I have that as the last question and sometimes it's a downer at the end of the podcast. So sure. I'm going to start with that one, but then I'm going to finish off on what gives you hope. So, so that we you know, hopefully finish off, finish up on a high. But first off, is there anything that does keep you up at night now? Yes. The, I'm sure you're probably getting the same answer from everyone. Um, so I apologize if this is a repeat for right. you, Jim, but for me, um, it's the social justice issues that we're facing. Um, and it's not just 
it's not just in California. We have plenty of yeah. them here. Um, you may have heard that our Congress is is considering is the first state to consider reparations for yep. African American and Black Americans. Um, we should be doing the same for Native Native Americans and Indigenous um, Indigenous peoples here. Um, it's the country what we're seeing across the country um, with regards to uh, restrictions on voting rights and reproductive the rights to reproductive health, um, and it's what we're seeing kind of. Uh, this move around the world towards this nationalist right, which I think is a little bit of an oxymoron to use national in that, in yeah. what the those movements really are about, because it's a many times a denial of of rights to the people who live in those nations, yeah. right? So that's um, I'm very worried about that. Very worried about that for my daughter's generation. Um, be very honest with you, when we were living in Paris, uh, it was when Trump was elected in 2016. We were set to move back to the States in 17, and we did. She was in bed with me. We were covering it We were covering it on the internet, right, and, and on my phones with my family and friends in the States. And, and when we saw that happen, I, I'm like, okay, it's like 2.30, we have to go to bed. You, I have to take you to school in the morning. And um, turn the lights out, and I started crying. And she was like, what? And I'm like, well, you know, I've been working night and day since I was like, I don't know, 10 for for women and women's rights. I've done everything in my life has kind of been focused on that. And you're going to have to start over. You're going to have a, you and your, your, the girls that you're friends yeah. with are going to have to redo a lot of the work that I have done and that my fellow women have done in my generation. So that yeah, these are the mm. things that keep me up at night. Uh, that was keeping me up at night then, and it yeah. and it's um, feel a little bit better now that he's not in the White House. But I'm I'm worried. I'm, like everybody, I'm worried about the midterms and yeah. you know the next election. So yeah, and, those are the things. Social justice issues keep me up at night for sure. Yeah. And, and then transitioning to what 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 does give you hope? What do you see well, out I, there now? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it all comes back to what I learned from my mother, right? That education 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 empowers the individual and it empowers the group to tangibly change your world for the better right if you learn things you open your mind and when you open your mind you stretch your heart into areas of acceptance that you didn't even it's not that you thought oh that's not possible i can't go there you didn't know were possible right so i think that um you know, every time I, you know, I'm told by a long tenured senior scientist, you know, after a lunch and learn or, you know, after yep. Sharice Davids was here or, 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 or any of these things uh, that I work to do, you've had a huge impact on our company's culture. Um, or somebody on my team says, you know, I've been working for 20 years and I've never worked on a legal team that's this in, this in sync with each other and this collaborative and this positive. Those those things bolster me. They have a huge impact on me, right, um, personally. And I think, okay, it's all worth it. We're going to get up at 4.30 tomorrow morning and we're going to go after it again, right? So I think that um, that's why I've kind of pushed my team to set up these initiatives. That's why I've pushed on DEI. That's why I've pushed on education through the Legal Gives Back initiative. Um, I think that it all comes down to education, right? The more you know, um, the bigger your brain is, the broader your heart is, the more open your soul is, the better world we're going to have. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, the less that can be taken away. 
Right. Um, right. So, Nicole right. Kelsey, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much for, for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Okay. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.